1: Let's get the latest on the geopolitical news, shall we, and cross over to Seoul to catch up with Bloomberg's Seoul bureau chief, Peter Pei. Peter, walk me through what we've learned in the last 30 minutes or so.
2: Yes, it's pretty amazing. Uh, About about 30 minutes ago, South Korea's special envoys to North Korea returned, uh, actually a couple of hours ago, and gave their briefing, uh, basically saying that they were told by North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, that he was willing to sit down with the United States and have a heart-to-heart talk uh, including the possibility of denuclearizing uh, North Korea, which is a stunning shift if that's true Mm. considering that North Korea has always maintained that uh, their nuclear program was not negotiable.
1: Yeah, Peter, it does raise the question, what was the catalyst for the change, the push that led to this shift?
2: Well, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, the detente had, had uh, significantly increased over the last month or two, mainly because North Korea decided to participate in the in the Pyeongchang Olympics. Um, I I think that the Trump administration will take some credit for it, maybe a large credit for it, saying that they it was because of their hardline stance, uh, increasing the the sanctions, their maximum pressure campaign that might have pushed North Korea's Kim Jong Un to and and uh, and come to the table. Uh, again, it's, uh, it's anybody's guess, uh, North Korea has always been unpredictable, yeah. and this was another case of this today.
1: For a long time, in fact, for the last year, for much of the past year, the President of the United States has said that he would back off China on trade issues if they stepped up the pressure on North Korea. From the uh, experts you speak to, Peter, is that what's worked here? Has that helped the situation?
2: Well, you know, uh, Yeah, in some part, maybe in large part, it may have, considering that China was the largest trading partner for North Korea and provided much of their, you know, their lifeline, really. Uh, And that had been cut back significantly. Uh, China did uh, cooperate with the U.S., uh, particularly with Donald Trump's request to tighten the sanctions. Yeah. Uh, That might have put a squeeze on North Korea. Um, That, you know, again, we will see.
1: Bloomberg Seoul Bureau Chief Peter Pei joining us from Seoul in South Korea. The message coming from South Korea from the special envoy returning from Pyongyang saying that North Korea is open to denuclearize if the regime's safety is assured. You see the impact on the FX market 30 minutes ago when this news dropped. Dollar weakness across the board with the exception of the Japanese yen. Dollar-yen pushing higher by just a tenth of one percent after being lower earlier in the session by about a third. Dollar-yen getting up to 106, spot 39. So Tom Keen, with We've got to talk about geopolitical risk fading in North Korea and trade war risk rising here in the United States potentially
0: well those are the I guess for investment those are the exogenous shocks are the things that are out there uh, that can surprise us. clearly was taken as a surprise as we saw the 10-year yield uh, reverse and uh, move higher uh, someone John Farrow that has to synthesize these headlines I guess from outside and of course to our global Wall Street audience is Charles Cantor with Newberger Berman, who has to, he has an opt. I believe Johnny has an optimistic take on where we're heading. Yeah, and you get headlines like this, and it, you know, futures up eleven, and it, it's pretty good. Particularly after what we witnessed in Washington yesterday. You'd have to
1: say, Charles, that the optimism at the moment is being rewarded. That if you faded the uh, the trade war risk through Thursday, you've been handsomely rewarded through Friday and Monday. Um, pessimism doesn't get rewarded these days, Charles. Does that change anytime soon? Well, it, it's a function of the backdrop.
3: Pessimism gets rewarded when, when your starting points provide you with no margin of safety. Um, today's starting points, I would suggest, provides you with a very reasonable margin of safety through the lens of valuation and discount rates. Um, market today on a Ford PE basis is, is possibly uh, as cheap and as expensive <clears throat> as last year. And we know what happened last year. So there's been a surge in corporate profits. Yes, the stock market's up, but, but business and, um, and consumer confidence is very high. And and with confidence comes, comes investment and, and planning on, on, on innovation. So context matters um, and starting points matter. And today's starting point is as reasonable as last year, which I would suggest is is still reasonable.
1: When Charles cancer picks up the front pages of the newspapers here in the United States and there's trade wars plastered everywhere and the President of the United States with some heightened rhetoric around it, the market's fading that. The view on Wall Street has changed radically compared to what you see on the front page of the national papers. But for you, Charles, to Tom's point, how do you synthesize those points that come from the nation's capital and the idea that we're drifting towards a trade war?
3: Well. It, it it for us it comes from from a process and and how we define ourselves and we we are long term investors we try and block out the news and and make sure as we allocate capital we get re, you know we get rewarded for the the risk we are taking and, and and the time that we've invested um so yes on the margin um the headlines matter um, anything that has the potential to disrupt supply and demand um matters of course we we dig in on 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 those that are most likely to be affected if the rules of of, of the road or or the rules of the game are implemented as suggested which they haven't been right. and so you dig in on the industrials you dig in on the machinery side you, you 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 call folks and and figure out how much of the the steel price increase will pass will, right. will be passed along and, and 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 how does it affect um, demand for goods and services.
2: You know,
0: we saw yesterday a headline, and full, full disclosure, folks, I'm not up to speed on a story where a CEO of a railroad company was shown the door yesterday, and the, the board talked about they needed more energy, they needed to energize, et cetera, et cetera. What this comes down to, Charles, which I know is religion for you, is corporate capital allocation. How do you identify large corporations that are poorly deploying capital? Is it in the annual report? Is it something that happens with smoke and incense? How do you figure that out?
3: There are a bunch of ways to attempt to figure that out. Um, One is to, to look at the CEO's record on return on invested capital. Has his investments reward, uh, covered his cost of capital? Has it covered the the cost of capital? Has it covered the the risk of implementation? Has it covered the the risk of the deal? Um, and 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 nothing speaks more loudly than that metric over time. And and businesses that can't earn a reasonable return on capital through a business cycle or through a very large strategic deal um, get placed um, in a in a very precarious place. Um, and, and mean, meaning job at risk, board under fire.
0: Do you assume that real rates, in inflation-adjusted interest rates rise here? Or is it just a nominal interest rate exercise? I, I think for us, it has to be a bit of both. Um, at some point,
3: the, 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 the yield itself, let's say on the 10-year, on the becomes a headwind um i think yeah. what we've observed so far has been um which i don't think gets necessarily enough attention is there's th- there's been an equally large step up in real growth expectations as there have been in inflation um and that's a fantastically healthy environment the bond market is suggesting there's going to be more real growth um which we have which which has been yeah. stubbornly low for a very well, long period of time. But yes, at some point, um, the aggregate yield on, on 10-year treasuries you know, will become a headwind. I mean, I like to describe today's environment as, well, um, in simple terms, we have lots of certainty on fundamentals and lots of uncertainty on rates, and that's dramatically
0: different you know, than the mosaic we've played with over the last five years. Charles Cantor with us at Newburgh uh, Berman. Right now with us, Kim Wallace uh, joins from Eurasia Group. And Kim, we had a spirited conversation earlier this morning about the organizational chart of Washington. You've experienced that at Treasury with President Obama, but you've also experienced it as student of the game as well. Do you know where the dotted lines and the solid lines are within Republican Washington right now?
4: No, nor do I think. They do. The dotted lines are more important. The informal uh, relationships that have built up over the last six quarters, Tom, have served uh, the leaders on the Hill and I think the staff in the White House better than the formal lines.
0: My book this summer, and and I haven't even announced it yet, but I'll do it right now, is Threat Matrix, which is a terrific book about, part of it is about the Bush administration and the security apparatus after the horror of 9-11. And we all understand there the organizational chart was really White House-centric, and everybody else had better understand it was White House-centric. Is that the way this administration is? I mean, you you were a Treasury within the Obama administration. Every administration is different. Is it White House-centric now, or is it something else?
4: It's White House-centric from the top line, but uh, in terms of the functions and the actual production of policy, it's diffused from there, and uh, that's actually a risk to the president. One of the keys of uh, confidence-building in the U.S. is a president who understands the apparatus underneath him and or her individually and uh, will use that, uh, utilize uh, those authorities well. Uh, the president hasn't learned those yet. He didn't come with those skills, and so you see a bunch of his agency heads— uh, Filling the void, which happens in Washington all the
1: time. So, Kim, help us understand, with that perspective, what is happening with the trade issue. Are these policies set to become policy, or are they negotiation tactics for a whole array of issues? It's pretty clear sitting here on Tuesday morning that it's a negotiation
4: tactic and the the tying of uh, steel and aluminum tariffs to negotiations down in Mexico City is a big reach, but nonetheless, it underscores the way the president thinks about policymaking. He thinks about it the same way he did in the private sector. And increasingly, that's becoming more and more complicated for him.
1: It's transactional. Does that make it difficult to execute policy in Washington, D.C.? And if so, how? doesn't make it difficult. It's just that you have to
4: have all of your trading partners or your negotiating partners understand that that's how you deal. And you have to have a staff that backs you up in that style. Right now, we don't have that linear thought process nor
1: delivery of uh, product. How rare is it to see what we're witnessing right now for the leadership of Paul Ryan to question the president's objectives at the moment with the tariffs that he's put on the table and for the potential within the administration to have a break from, say, Gary Cohn? one of his lead economic advisers, to say, hold on a minute. He's said to be convening business leaders who consume metals to try and convince the president not to do this. How rare are these kind of things?
4: To say that the process now in Washington is unique is an understatement. And so uh, what you will have is you'll continue to have fits and starts in policy, which I think erodes uh, the president's mm-hmm. uh, authority, not only in Washington, but around the world.
0: Have you seen a good number on where our, our, our fiscal deficits going? I... I've been working just under 1.4 trillion. Have you seen a better study yet, or do we just we just simply don't know? Do we?
4: We don't know for sure, but the simple math in front of us is about 1.5 trillion added to the 10-year baseline from the spending program in February, and about the same $1. 1.4, $1. 1.5 trillion yeah. added from the tax program in December.
0: That's out 10
4: years. Uh, out 10 years so over the baseline. Trillion,
0: Three trillion trillion out over 10 years. John, you're going to be dazzled by this. That's $300 billion a year. There we go. So, oh, I Did, did that. you get the calculator we'll <laughs> you know, we,
4: we will pay some net interest cost of that because all, oh, of, really? it, <laughs> all of that is debt financed. And so uh, the fiscal story is much more complicated than it's being given attention and will become dangerous with that right? attention in the next year it, or two. It, uh, we
0: should point out this is one of your great acclaims, Kim Wallace. If that is the fact... When does the mystery go away? When do we actually begin to understand what we have wrought?
4: Usually in policymaking or politics, you only understand what you've wrought once somebody's pointed it out to you. In this case, we rely on the CBO and the OMB to yeah. do that. The Congressional Budget Office will come out with a re-estimate of the baseline in April. That will get attention. It will generate headlines. But we're headlines, waiting
0: for CBO. Nothing's is, changed.
4: Nothing's changed until April. And frankly, when you have uh, the U.S. economy uh, pumping on many cylinders as it is now, maybe not all cylinders, but many cylinders, it destroys. Tracks from the downside story. So my guess is you'll be into next year or sometime after the election before you start thinking
1: seriously about fiscal policy drag. Kim Wallace, before we let you go, we've done trade policy, fiscal policy. Let's talk about foreign policy just briefly. Some important headlines coming out of North Korea and South Korea this morning that the North may be willing to denuclearize if the regime is protected. How does one protect a regime when history says that once the country is denuclearized something very different happens?
4: It's a great question. I think it points to the difficulty in reaching the kind of a deal that uh, the headlines are suggesting. It is not to say that the South Koreans don't have an abiding interest in a deal, obviously they do more than anyone else in the world, maybe Japan, but it does point to the fact that getting the regime that has spent the last 30 years building its national defenses to back away from what you would say the sweetest part of those national defences will be very difficult. And if that requires a superpower like the U.S. to give concessions publicly and privately in order to get that deal, you have to believe that yeah. deal is long in coming.
1: Would it be fair to say that this unique approach from this administration might be generating some results on the foreign policy side of things, Kim?
4: Obfuscation in foreign policy is a plus, usually, so long as you have a strategy.
0: Kim Wells, thank you so much. This is brilliant. Thank love, you. Love, love to have you. Look forward to speaking to you at our 99 1 FM Washington studios as well. He is with Eurasia Group, with the Inframerous Eurasia Group. Mm-hmm. Stephen Shork with us now. He's with us recently on oil. Stephen, I want to go back to Shork 101. Which is a basic question, are we energy independent? That's been around for a lifetime. Are we there yet? Uh, we are not there yet,
5: but if you do believe the IEA, which is a body that studies this uh, based on Paris, uh, certainly within the next five years, uh, they are projecting that uh, not necessarily independent, but the United States will certainly be the largest crude oil producer surpassing what well, we've already surpassed Saudi Arabia and, and will certainly surpass uh, Russia uh, probably by the end of next year as far as crude oil production goes. So at that point, guys, what I really want to emphasize is that the demand structure has completely changed. And, Tom, I know this is right up your alley. Uh, The inelasticities of demand uh, are are changing uh, quite substantially uh, because now we have the the second factor that impacts consumer behavior, and that is substitutes. And, of course, I'm talking about electric vehicles and driverless technology. But they're not there yet. They're not there yet. So how do you discount
0: that to the present? Uh, to the present
5: right now uh, we've made a significant impact already just in the past five years and hence we're don't uh, we're not seeing a commensurate increase in demand uh, relative to what you would normally expect given the improvement in the economy the improvement in incomes right now so this is essentially telling me that we're already starting to see the impact uh, and right now the, the writing is on the wall all of the major oil companies guys uh, have rebranded themselves over the last last couple of years. They no longer consider themselves oil companies. They now consider themselves natural gas and, believe it or not, power companies. So certainly we are now in a significant paradigm shift.
6: All right, Stephen Short, come in on the idea that uh, natural gas right now is uh, going international, liquefied natural gas. I yes. was reading, uh, I guess it was last week, that there was a shipment of natural gas that came from Russia. It was offloaded uh, in Boston because of the kind of crazy dynamics of this market. Can you explain what's going on to people?
5: Sure. In Boston, you have essentially the NIMBY crowd, where there is considerable backlash about expanding uh, access to uh, gas from my home state here in Pennsylvania. So the New England market uh, has chosen to keep itself isolated from the bonanza of supply. So their supply essentially comes from uh, liquefied natural gas. The rupture, that's certainly significant. But there's also offshore production uh, in, um, uh, in the northern Atlantic there. And Boston has to compete on the LNG market globally. And they also have to compete with Canadian uh, demand in eastern o- um, Ontario and Quebec. So Boston is kind of an island on itself. But the bottom line here is demand for natural gas has, has been created. We're, we're now building the infrastructure to get it out. We're de-glutting the markets. Mexico is going to be a huge customer of U.S. natural gas, pipeline gas. They already are. They're, they're largest buyer of US LNG at this point, but we have a significant amount of pipeline infrastructures that are being connected. So the demand structure is, is really changing here, and it's really bullish. And hence why I'm telling all of my clients on the end side who have to buy natural gas feedstocks for the manufacturing processes, if they are not locking in natural gas prices at sub $3 now, they are doing their investors a considerable disfavor right now because the future is extremely bright for natural gas demand and hence natural gas prices.
6: Well, natural gas prices right now, $2.73 per million BTU, up one and a quarter percent. Stephen, then is there a certain irony that you have President Donald Trump who supports the construction of the various pipelines, let's say coming from Canada to the United States to bring uh, Canadian oil uh, into the U.S. to be refined and then shipped out? Is there an irony that there's support there and and yet there is this trade uh, confrontation between the United States Canada and now Mexico, even though they import a lot of our natural gas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I
5: cannot figure out this administration, and and every time I do it, really makes my my head hurt at mm-hmm. this point because I don't know how much of it is smoke and mirrors yeah. and, and and so forth. Trying trying to manage uh, expectations, but the bottom line here is Canada, Mexico. I mean, our are, yeah. are two greatest uh, trading partners, uh, friends as it were. Uh, I'm not, I'm not putting a lot of faith into it. I think a lot of it is is bluster at this point. Uh, but Pim, I want to go back to to the issue of the pipeline infrastructure, Canada uh, is just producing way too much oil. They are producing way too much natural gas. They simply don't have the offtake, the takeaway capacity, even with the
6: construction of uh, Keystone XL. Thanks very much, uh, Stephen Shork. He is the editor of The Shork Report.
0: Now the most important interview of the day, with a gentleman who invented a business, and changed everyone's lives. Brian Kelly, were you in college? Were like because this is romantic enough. You were in a dorm room somewhere.
7: Well, yeah, I, I discovered Miles. I was student body president at the University of Pittsburgh, and I was traveling all around. And all of a sudden, I had elite status, and I was making no money. And you were like, like eighteen years yeah, old, and you were going getting to Bali upgraded for to the first class. Dollars. Yeah, I was like, this is a really cool like you, why isn't you, everyone taking advantage of this
0: brian kelly the points guy with a website it links the charge cards into miles and all that are you here to see jamie diamond when you're done with us are you going to go to jp morgan and sh- shake everybody's hand
7: yeah and, and, and walk out with my suitcases of do cash. they speak to you yeah we work directly with chase you know all the credit card issuers we work with because we know their products better than they do so we know how to translate why credit cards make sense to business travelers to millennials What's
0: the biggest mistake we make in our credit card idiocy besides we don't pay our bill off and then, you know... Well, that,
7: yeah. that I mean, if you're paying interest and fees, even if you're earning points, you're negating the value of any of them. Right. I think a lot of people get stuck with one card forever and they're like, ah, I don't want to change my... You know, the card on file and you're kind of cranky and then you realize, well, why aren't I earning so many points? There's so many different bonuses, not just to get the card, but category bonuses. So you really, it takes a little bit of effort, but you should be putting certain spend for groceries on one card, Uber mm-hmm. on another. You make those little tweaks and all of a sudden you're earning, you know, two, three hundred more points.
6: Brian, uh, why uh, do they make it so complicated? People already have jobs and lives they need to spend time dealing with. I mean, you know, if you're going to go through and say, all right, I get bonus value of $1,000 for the Chase Sapphire Preferred card and 50,000 points on offer. Good luck trying to get the flight, the seat and the timetable that you want.
7: Well, you know, it's actually, I would disagree with that because most of the credit card programs, even Chase now allows you to buy any flight at, you know, if you have the reserve card, it's one and a half cents a point, which is really rich. So you don't have to jump through those hoops. But if you do want to transfer to a frequent flyer program, you can still get insane value. I just booked my parents, Hong Kong, JFK, Cathay business class. It's one way, 50,000 Alaska miles and 20 bucks for an $8,000
0: Come on. This is un-American. Say that. Stop the show. So
7: so it's all about partners, right? You
0: put two people business class one way.
7: Well, it was one way. So it's, you can get Alaska. So everything's about partnerships. So Alaska Airlines miles, even if you live in New York, Alaska Airlines miles are the most valuable U.S. carrier currency because they have all these crazy partners like Japan Airlines, Cathay Pacific, Emirates. So in Alaska miles, even if you don't fly them, you can buy them at two cents a pop. So think about that Cathay ticket I got for my parents that was 50,000 miles one way for an $8,000 ticket. I paid 1,000 to just buy those miles. So there's an arbitrage game there too with buying miles and then... You know, you also
4: John get Tucker, the right credit. are
0: you taking notes on this?
7: I am taking it. I just want to know, you know, how do I get to Pittsburgh?
0: <laughs> well no, but that's a serious question. Your world is all this romance of going to Bali for hundred and forty-two dollars. What can you do for somebody listening on Sirius XM Channel one nineteen in Cincinnati yeah. who needs to get to Boston one oh six one FM?
7: Well you mentioned it earlier. I mean so domestic flights actually airline pricing hasn't gone up that much. So I would say use You know, use Google Flights. So google.com slash flights. It's a free site that'll allow you to look at airline pricing by day. You can, if you know, you know, if you're flexible with dates, you can save a ton. So save the points for expensive trips Mm -hmm. or as an insurance policy, right? So if someone in your family gets uh, sick, you can use the points for those last minute, super expensive tickets. But hunt out the cheap deals uh, because we've seen insane deals to even to Europe. And, you know, there's all these low cost carriers now. There's a new one. It's like $100 each way. To maybe it's heated
0: up a little bit, Pim. Well, okay, the I mean, I stand corrected,
6: back. but I mean, I got to say in all of my times trying to make this happen, uh, you know, the flight you want is either not available, you can't get the seats that you want, but... um I want to talk about the seats, because let's say you do get a seat on the on a plane. Isn't the FAA going to come in and say something about the size of the seat?
7: Yeah, I think we're getting to a point where they're jamming, and it, it is uncomfortable. Like, I mean, some airlines have 10 across seating now on planes that used to have like 8 Well, I should point across. out
0: that Mr. Kelly and I are clocking in at 6.5. Um, it's yeah. a joke. I mean, American seating is becoming like what That's I fly crazy. to Davos but when the, I'm not in the But what stream. I
7: will say is the airlines used to block all the best seats for elite travelers. So it kind of sucks for elite travelers because now you can buy the best seat. So what I would say is, yes, you're not going to get the cheapest price and the best seat. Right. You know, it's economics 101. <clears> so you can at least, even if you don't have elite status now, right. you can shell out 30, 40, 50 bucks and get the best The better seat with us,
0: Brian Kelly, the points guy on your website today. Emily McNutt writing about the weather that's coming. Rob Carroll and will be with us tomorrow, folks, with updated weather uh, forecasts. And the question I get, particularly from parents with kids, when do we get away from waiting four hours on the runway?
7: Yeah. You know, the airlines have gotten better with that, with the new rules that that got into place. But what I would recommend with these big storms, when you know it's coming, so all the airlines issue weather waivers, and that's what we try to warn people. Guess what? There will be seven-hour waits on, on the airline you know, tomorrow. So if you wait until Wednesday, peak of storm, just to try to travel. figure it out. Don't travel. Cancel your plans, right? Like, unless you really have to be somewhere, the airlines waive all the fees. So
0: take advantage so of that. So you cancel tomorrow and you don't... You can rebook or just get rebook. all your money back. The right. airlines
7: will just give you all your money back. Save yourself the stress. You know, you know Some people will be mad. Oh, the airline didn't tell me it was going to be delayed until I got to the airport. Well, guess what? I can tell you tomorrow in a Northeast storm. Just make alternate plans in advance.
6: Alternate plans in advance. That's when you got the weather report. Yeah. Uh, what about traveling other than using an airplane? Right? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. There's all these new bus
7: uh, bus startups coming out. You know, who knows with Hyperloop if that will actually disrupt the, uh, the airline industry. I mean, train travel still, you know, kind of a disaster. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. expensive. It's not really that fast. But, uh, you know, certainly along yeah. the East Coast, it can still make sense.
6: But that's where I was going with so train travel. Why is it impossible for the uh, railroad industry to figure out a way to use points and some kind of uh, customer relation uh, I think it's program? just the economics aren't there, right? Amtrak' is subsidized by the government and still
7: kind of loses money. And that's on, you know, the the whole infrastructure, right? The whole system. No one company, no one startup's going to come in and be like, let me retract the U.S., right? It's a massive undertaking that I think as a country we need to get behind yeah. if it's going to...
0: I think the biggest surprise in your new annual report, the best and worst U.S. airlines in 2018, without question, the headline is JetBlue, which falls off a cliff. And yet you're, at the bottom, you're very kind to JetBlue, as I've experienced, in that it's actually comfortable.
7: Yeah. So we did this survey. So look, I get so annoyed. There's all these airline industry promoted surveys of the best airlines. I mean, yeah. I, you walk on American Airlines and like best airline, I'm like under what criteria, you know? So at the points guy, we don't take any free flights or hotels, everything's independent. So we we put together a survey that said, what matters most to consumers? And to be honest, most people want price. So 25% of our ranking was based on the average price um, of tickets mm-hmm. on that airline. We also looked at customer service, lost bags, on-time performance was huge. And unfortunately I love JetBlue. But it's not about what any one person's uh, experience is. We looked at data. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. JetBlue was last in terms of on-time performance. JetBlue, you know, they lost out on the Virgin America bid. Their route network just isn't as big as the others. So, you know, they're well, they're not a terrible airline by any means. I love them, but, you know, and they're not really ex- excelling okay. in any one category. You went
0: where I wanted to go. Is Alaska Airlines taking the cool out of Virgin America?
7: You know, they certainly are by d- dissolving a cool brand. I wouldn't have necessarily agreed with that. I do think they need to, um, you know, I-, I think, you know, it's two good companies coming together. And Alaska certainly has a really yeah. solid brand as well. So I don't think it's, it was, okay. you know, the worst idea. But
0: And now, it is a tradition of Bloomberg surveillance, we speak with Brian Kelly about his next Pacific Ocean travel someplace for forty nine dollars, where are you going next,
7: a oh wise one? Well, you know it's funny. I, I actually just—it's not to...
0: funny. It makes us it, sick. But continue. Fiji.
7: Uh... <laughs> Fiji. <laughs>
0: Pass the Fiji water, John. Fiji. So,
7: I'm still working on my flight. It's actually a lot of the flights are sold out. So I'm actually it's it's booking last minute can be amazing on certain flights, but to destinations like Fiji where there's like one or two flights a day, I, I haven't quite booked it yet. But once again, Alaska Airlines miles are amazing uh Fiji Air uh or American Airlines with Air Tahiti Nui so I got to uh and and you know getting flexible with routing and stopping in different islands so I'm, I'm still in the middle of that. I, I look at booking award trips as crossword puzzles, you know, using all the different tools that I have to. What's the
0: biggest mistake people make in the crossword puzzle? The
7: biggest mistake is listening to airline websites. So, airline websites won't show you all partners. You know, so if you want to use your AA miles, you know, flying Cathay Pacific is one of the best ways, but AA.com will never show you. But a... how
0: do you book Cathay
7: Pacific? So, you got to call, or you could use British Airways' website to sniff out the Cathay flights because Cathay will show on British Airways. Oh, and once you see the Cathay flight on British, you call up AA. Write more
0: stories about this. We didn't even get <laughs> hotels. Brian Kelly, congratulations. The best and worst U.S. Airlines in 2018. Alaska Air takes the trophy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen.